You may be seated and you may open your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 12. Book of Romans, chapter 12. And I'll read a few verses here from verse 4 to 9. And we've gone over these somewhat, but there's a lot here when you start talking about the functioning of the church and the gifts of the Spirit and the responsibilities of the members and such things. So I'll start at verse 4 and read through verse 9 where Paul writes to the Roman church, For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness, let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. O oh, Father, may we take this passage to heart and may you apply it to our lives, Father, that we would walk by these great exhortations from your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So here we are again, talking about the body of Christ and the functioning of the church. And so he writes, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. Friends, the church was really the first diversity group. You hear so much about diversity today. The church was always diverse. Go back to Acts chapter 2 and see how many different ethnic and racial backgrounds of people were saved in, in one day in one, after one sermon. It's like the whole world came together and they recognized they had so much in common. The, the Apostle Paul preached to them, we are all made from one blood. The church was always diverse. Now Christians had trouble with diversity, but the scriptures and the church of God do not. In fact, we thrive in it. So though we're all members of one body, the members are diverse, and the gifts that God gives them to minister to one another are also diverse gifts. They're very different. We're all very different. So the, the Apostle Paul continues in his doctrine of the church. He's teaching us about the functioning of the church. And it isn't simply a teaching on the components of the church, i.e. the uh, various gifts and the various gifted people, although that is part of it. But rather, he's giving us an exhortation or a teaching on the practical nature of the functioning of the church. What is the church? It developed over time, as we'll see as we go into this. Needs arose, and the church had defined, um, divinely um, acceptable ways to meet those needs, and so they did. Every true church has genuine gifts from God. And they are the much heralded gifts of the Spirit we talk about. Now, whenever we get into talk about 
the gifts of the Spirit, everyone thinks we're going to talk about tongues. And who speaks in tongues? And should we? Um, and perhaps we will get into some of that. Um, But the, the gifts are of the Spirit, and the Spirit is the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is God, and God is ever present by His Spirit in the life of the churches. God lives within the people, within the churches, binds us together in one in Christ. And so we're never without the loving nearness and presence of God. We're not bereft, the churches are not bereft of his constant intercession he doesn't leave us sometimes it feels that way the puritans called it desertions they felt deserted by god there are those times that we god allows that to happen in us but god is always there with us he has promised to be to the very end of the age i will never leave you nor forsake you he said the spirit of god brings the very life of god and the ministry of Christ into the individual lives and the corporate ministry of his own precious body. What we know of God is primarily from two sources. One, the Word of God, inspired by the Spirit of God, and number two, the Church of God. What we know of God, we know largely from one another. Each individual church body is an independent body. I'll say it again. Each individual church body is an independent body. Now, that's controversial. All you have to do is look at the church. That's controversial. There's a controversy about that. This is, what, this is our Baptist view of the authority and polity, if you will, or government of the, of the churches. Each church is a self-governing body. Now, as you know, there are others whom we respect very much, certain Presbyterian organizations where there's a presiding synod that makes all the decisions for the churches which are beneath them. All right? Um, as Baptists, we, don't, we, we can understand where they draw those conclusions from the New Testament, but we don't see them as binding on the churches. All right? That almost speaks to uh, an apostolic succession, and it is our belief, it's my belief, that the apostles were the apostles, and that's it. There's no more, we have apostles in the church, but they're the same ones we always had. And they're in heaven with God, and the church is a self-governing. Anyway, that's our view. Uh, that's one of our Baptist distinctives, all right? We're not like the Episcopal Church, which is a great ruling body and has all these churches under it, and they can tell them what to do and appoint pastors and fire pastors and give money to this church or that church. We don't have that. There are some benefits to those kinds of things, but we have foregone them uh, in the Baptist churches. And sometimes you might say, well, the, the Southern Baptist Convention is called, I believe it's the biggest, quote, denomination in the country. The only problem is it's not a denomination. It's, a, it's an association of individually governed churches who agree to certain things for, um, for certain benefits. And it's a good thing. We thought, we thought about it a couple of times of joining an organization like that. We just never did. Um, so there's no ruling body over the local churches. And you know what's interesting is um, in reading uh, Lloyd-Jones' commentaries, he agrees with that. And he, uh, you know, in his day, uh, walked in many reformed circles where that was not 
um, the general belief. Um, he also believes in believer's baptism, which was interesting for a congregationalist like himself. So each church operates, friends, by the loving efforts of the members that are present within them. If the people don't exercise their gifts, the, the church doesn't operate at its full capacity. In fact, I dare say it doesn't operate as a church at all. Because the gifts are there. And I want to talk a lot about the gifts in the next few weeks. Um, so each church operates by the loving efforts of the members present with them. And the members are the very members chosen by God for that local church. Now you can make of it what you want, but in 1 Corinthians 12, 8, where it talks very much about the gifts, all right, we find this in verse 18. But now God has set the members, each one of them in the body, just as he pleased. You are here because God was pleased for you to be here. And you really ought to rejoice in that. You're right where God wants you to be. He says, every member is endowed with spiritual gifts in order that the churches may um, develop a couple of things. One, that they all resemble one another. Churches shouldn't be too far apart um, in how they look in respect to their mission or their purpose or the commandments that they follow. They should all be very close to the same. We've seen the organizational development in the early church from the book of Acts. If you remember after the great revival at the time of Pentecost in verse 2 of the book of Acts, there were several thousand members almost in a single moment. And in the succeeding days, thousands of members were added. And Luke wrote that the Lord added daily all those who were being saved. He added to the church daily all those who were being saved. And it became abundantly clear over time that the needs of those many people um, could be met by the other members of the organization. And so they began to organize in Acts 6. Let, let me, I'm going to go back there and read some of it to you, just to refresh our memories. Acts chapter 6. And uh, I'll talk about this somewhat later also in the message this morning. But it says this in Acts 6. This is, remember, this is the infant church, wondering how they're going to deal with all these immigrants that are coming in suddenly to the church from all these different places, and they don't know how to deal with them. And it says, Now in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint. All right? A complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists. The Hellenists are the Greeks, right? Cultural Greeks. They didn't have to be ethnic Greeks. Hellenists meant they were cultural Greeks. If you read in your King James, it says Grecian instead of Hellenist. All right? And uh, so there was these two groups, and one group felt the other group was being favored over them, and the church can't operate that way, and the apostles knew it, so they heeded the complaint, and um, the Hebrews had a complaint because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution, and if you're reading your King James, it says the daily ministration, and that's a, a point I want to make later, and so keep that in mind. But, and then we read, then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, so the 12 apostles, right, at this time including Matthias, who they had chosen, right, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. So the apostles weren't willing 
to become servants all of a sudden. Their service was to feed the multitude the word of God, and they felt they had to stay uh, in that capacity. So we have to have another level of organization here of spiritually gifted men who can do the material serving, you see. And so at verse 3 it says, Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, who we may appoint over this business, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And then it goes through and it names the men, and one of them is Stephen, and um, they become the first deacons of the church, seven men. But notice the church had the authority to make that decision for themselves. All right? And so that goes right back to really the very beginning of the church when the church was finding its organizational path. All right? Now, over time, I've seen the importance of individual members of the body in the day to day carrying out of the church. And this is certainly the model of the New Testament churches. It has been said, friends, that God loves a cheerful giver. Now, it says that in uh, 2 Corinthians um, chapter 9, I believe 2 Corinthians chapter 9, it's talking about giving of money. But really, God loves a cheerful giver. And if you have a gift, you've got to remember the gift is not for you. It's not for your edification. It's not to honor you. It's not an honor. It's a responsibility. And it's something you owe to God's people. And that's how you always ought to look at the gift. You ought to rejoice that you're able to give something back. All right? And so give to the church. Be a cheerful giver. You know, the cheerful part is the hard part sometimes. Oh, I give so much and nobody else does anything. You know, it's easy to get into that sort of a, a mode. Trust me, it's easy to get into that sort of a thinking. But you can't, you're not, you shouldn't do that. Um, Never feel like you're giving too much. Give to the church, give your best, give from the heart, give sacrificially, and never ever feel as though you've given too much. It's quite like a parent. One of you said to me recently, I've never regretted anything I've done for my children. I know the, I know the feeling. It's a poor parent who thinks he's given too much to his own children. You never feel as though you've given too much. I've never regretted anything I've given to my children. So let's not forget the principle involved here. God is ultimately, friends, a farmer. He's also a builder. He's a lot of other things. He builds a building, but he plants a vineyard, all right? God is ultimately a farmer. He's a planter. He's a sower of seeds, right? And he expects us to be likewise. And so he says, but this I say... He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Now, there's a spiritual law. There's a spiritual principle. Pastor Ken used to say, you can't outgive God. You feel like you're given too much, but you're not. You're given, you're giving of, of the gift that God has given to you, and it's not for you. It's for the church, you see. I can't stay home and preach to myself. What good would it do? I do that, but then I come here and preach. Karen sees me talking to myself all the time. I'm really not talking to myself. And so with the principle, the Lord goes on to conclude that God is able 
to make all grace abound toward you that you always, having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. In other words, God may let you feel bereft for a little while and depleted as though you've given too much, but he will bless you, not just with enough, but with abundance for every good work. It's a promise of God. And so there's this basic division of labor, as you can see, developing in the church. Just like in the Industrial Revolution, there was this division of labor, right? Um, and there's this needy body. You know, you got these widows over here. You got the Hebrew widows, you got the Grecian or Hellenistic widows, and they need help from the body. And as we know from the Word of God, Old and New Testament, that it's incumbent upon the church to take care of its widows. It's older women or it's single women. And so they had to develop, um, the church had to turn into an outly, outwardly um, charitable body. Not just spiritual in terms of the preaching that the apostles said we're going to stay with, but we also have to be materially uh, you know, cognizant of the needs of people. And so the apostle here is showing us that the body is needy. It's a hungry population of brothers and sisters all striving and thirsting for a connection with God. And the apostle is showing us that our real and palpable and experiential connection with God begins with our real and intimate and loving connection with one another. I feel sorry for people who think they're Christians who are not attached to the body of Christ. I really do. I feel sorry for them. And so there's this blessed unity. We have unity of mind. We have unity of purpose, unity of faith. But in this blessed, unified condition, there is still this great, blessed diversity of powers and talents and functions within the church. Now, so far, I don't think I've told you anything you didn't know. I think, you know, I think you know all these things. But let's begin at organization from the top. We, as most Reformed churches, believe and practice a plurality of elders. We try not to have just one elder. We try to have men come together because we're fallible men in our understanding. And it's good that, you know, you, you've heard the, the proverb that iron sharpens iron and one man sharpens the other, right? So it's good to have more than one man in in um, the role of elder in the church. We call it a plurality of elders. And they all have equal ruling authority. But they don't all have equal influence, do they? It's generally seen that there's one elder who stands out with regard to ministry and spiritual leadership. And you say that when you talk about some of the um, ministries that you listen to online or in cable television over the years. Um, You probably don't know all the elders in John MacArthur's church, you say, I, I listen to MacArthur's church. People say things like this, all right? Um, because that's our experience. We, we have unity and diversity, but at the top, there's usually in the independent churches uh, one spiritual leader, and you'll find that to be the case. One person who does most of the teaching, most of the preaching, um, And I think that people come to expect that. Uh, And the pastoral epistles make examples of this. There are examples of this all throughout 
the New Testament, particularly in the pastoral epistles. Timothy and Titus are in different parts of the world. Timothy in Ephesus, Titus in Crete. And so to Timothy, Paul writes this, I urged you when I, was into, when I went into Macedonia to remain in Ephesus, that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine and give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause dispute rather than godly edification which is in faith. In other words, there's gifted men, there's teachers in the church at Ephesus, but Timothy is in charge of making sure they teach the right thing. And he put one influential man in charge of this. Man after Paul's own heart, really. His son in the faith, faith Timothy. To Titus, he writes something similarly. He says, for this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city. In other words, draft this new organizational uh, program into the other churches. Make sure they have... Um, qualified leadership in the churches so appoint elders in the churches and then he goes on and tells them what do you look for in an elder and i think you know from first timothy 3 or titus 2 and other places you see these qualifications for elders right now note the two words here he said for this reason i left you in crete that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as i commanded you so you have order and you have commandments. Friends, we have order and we have commandments. Churches are to be orderly organizations. They are to submit to authority also. So there's, um, there's this joining always in the New Testament of freedom and responsibility or freedom and authority, if you will. Churches are to be orderly. They are to submit to authority from above and they are to prosper due to God's lovingly, divinely inspired cooperation between the members. They are to believe the same thing, all right, the same basic essentials of the faith. We have what we call, what the, uh, I think the Baptist confession called um, fundamental agreement. We don't agree on every jot and tittle. We work these things out and we talk about them. But we are to believe the same things. We are to teach the same things. We are to observe the same laws and commandments as one another. We don't take liberties with the Ten Commandments. And so Paul, from here, goes on to list the qualifications of the one who would be appointed an elder in the churches of God. We see the same thing in Jerusalem with James, the Lord's brother. This is the case where James became the single most important leader in that church at the time. If you go to Acts 15, the so-called Jerusalem Council came together to settle some of the issues between the Gentile believers and the, and the, and the um, Jewish believers. And, uh, and so in Acts 15, James was called to preside over the council of elders, and so he did, even though Peter was present. Now there are also spiritual regulations in place to guard against authoritarian excesses of elders, all right? But even these are self-imposed regulations by the elders themselves. Peter writes it this way, the elders who are among you I exhort, and then he makes this statement, I who am a fellow elder. Peter apparently was a pastor of a church, he said, I who am a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings in, of Christ 
and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, he says these words, shepherd the flock of God which is among you. Serve as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but by being examples to the flock. So the pastor is to self-regulate according to this teaching of Peter. And so elders are to immerse themselves in the word of God and the teachings of Christ. And that's why the twelve apostles at the time of the great revival said it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Peter goes on to note, the authority of elders is not merely ceremonial, but it's genuine and it's actionable. Now, we don't really see it that way anymore in the churches. People don't really submit to sound counsel from elders. Um, And so he goes on to speak to the sheep with regard to the honor shown to the shepherd, and he says words like this. He says, likewise, you younger people submit yourself to your elders. We had a prayer request about that this morning. That's how young people learn the way of Christ, by submitting to elders. Not just hearing them out and going your own way, but actually submitting, taking advice and applying it to your life. What is it um, Mike Sullivan used to say? um, We have to stop learning from experience. Learning from what? We have to stop learning from our mistakes so often. That's right. Thank you. Uh, That was a long time ago he said that. He said it just off the cuff. You know, I'm like, that's good. We should always remember that. We have to stop learning from our mistakes so often. Friends, we've made the mistakes. We can help you not make the mistakes. Um, And so he says uh, these other things. He says, uh, uh, younger people, submit to your elders. From, uh, to the Hebrews we read, Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God, whose faith follow, consider the outcome of their conduct. You know, in other places he told Timothy, do not accept an accusation against an elder unless it's from two or three witnesses. All right? There's always forces trying to bring down the leadership of churches. Remember that. And sometimes they come from within. Um, He writes this, uh, the writer of Hebrews, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive. For they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief. For that would be unprofitable for you. I think what he's saying there is don't get the pastor mad. That's That's what it sounds like. So having said all that, there was still always this perfect blend of this spiritual blending of freedom and authority. You know, I've often said as, the, uh, as an elder in the church, as the pastor of the church, that my job is to be the judge, but not the police. Have you ever heard me say that? In other words, I can tell you what's right and wrong, but I don't, but I think I overstep if I go into your lives and try to investigate all the wrong stuff. Now, there are some Reformed churches who believe that. And if you read the Reformed pastor from Richard Baxter back in the Puritan age, um, they had this uh, pastoral visitation where they just dropped in on people to catch them at stuff (laughs) and fix it. Um, And it's thought to be a very good practice. 
you know, and and if you've got nothing to hide, you should be okay. And he had 800. I think he, I think Baxter had 800 families in the. He was a big church, and it took him a whole year to visit all of them. He'd visit two or three in a day. I remember a writing from George Herbert that said um, the pastor should go out and catch them in their calling. If they're out in the field, see if he's yelling at the servants and beating them or something. But um, I don't hold to that. I'll tell you, I might knock at the door someday. You might be surprised. I do that with Mrs. Davids. I haven't caught her yet at anything. <laughs> but every now and then I'm... <laughs> I'm still trying. She doesn't know I've already looked in the windows around the side. <laughs> There's the pastor. <laughs> oh, how do I get into these things? But there's this blending. Yeah, it's terrible. You wouldn't want that. You don't want a pastor who's an investigator, who's a police. But you do want to come and have him be able to judge between right and wrong. It says that very clearly in, in the book of uh, 1 Corinthians. It says if you can't judge the simple matters, how are you going to judge the important eternal matters? Judge these obvious things. Man was in this heinous sexual sin. I mean, it's obviously wrong. It's not something you glory in and say, oh, well, it's okay. You don't do that. Um, but having said all that, as I say, there's this spiritual blending of freedom and authority. Now, I've always said to you that the kingdom of God is just that. It's a kingdom. It's not a democracy. Imagine that, a good kingdom with a good king. It's not a democracy. It's not ruled by the consent of the governed, the way our Constitution tells us we should be ruled, by the consent of the governed. However... The future kingdom, though it's an absolute monarchy run by an absolute monarch with absolute power, at the same time, there's a consent of the governed. Now, we don't need to consent to what Jesus in the new heaven and the new earth will legislate for us to live by. We don't need to consent, but we will. There'll be this perfect blending, then, of an authoritative, benevolent dictator, if you will, and the consent of the governed. We will agree with our king. That's what we strive for now. We may never see it. doesn't seem we're even close, but at that time, there'll be no dissent on anything in the kingdom of God. Everyone will agree and submit in every thought, bringing every thought into obedience to the captivity of Christ, right? And not only will we agree with our king, we'll be glad of it. But for now, here on earth, there will be this attempt to find that perfect blend of freedom and authority. And so the church is involved in every momentous decision of the elders. In other words, the church does have a say. The congregation has gifts. The congregation has hopefully good understanding of some of these things and so we might note that in acts 13 when paul and barnabas were sent out to mission work from the church at antioch that it was the holy spirit who directly informed them meaning the church that he was separating paul and barnabas for this purpose and so we read in uh, acts 13 2 as they ministered to the lord who's the they the church as they ministered to the lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, 
separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I had called them. So the Spirit did not just come down and speak to the ministers. And I always find that amazing because we don't know, was it a voice? Was it an inner unction? What was it? It says the Holy Spirit said, and then it's a quotation. But he didn't speak to the appointed ministers. He addressed the whole body to take part in the appointment, in the appointment rather, and they were happy to comply. So even though Paul and Barnabas were expressly sent by the Holy Spirit, the next verse shows that the church is always involved in the choosing and anointing process of her ministers. And that's how we choose and remove our ministers. And so Luke writes, Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. You can see that that's a real process, though. Because how do you say having fasted and prayed? Fasting. Usually a fast is at least a 24-hour period, right? It is, I don't think they're talking about intermittent fasting, you know? I love it here when, when Christians say, I think I'm going I'm to fast, plus I'll lose weight. But um, having fasted and prayed, I don't know. What, what's, a, what's the shortest fast? This was a process. They were fasting. I would guess it's at least a 24-hour period, if not more. And they prayed, and then they laid hands on them and sent them away. So the church, along with the spiritual prompting of God, chooses and commissions her own officials. Again in Acts 6, when the multitude of new disciples became very great, as we talked about already, and they became challenging to serve, the apostles asked the people to choose from among themselves seven men to meet the needs of the infant church and to serve them equally. So there wouldn't be this um, discontent among them. And so it was the apostles who decided to call men with certain gifts to certain offices for the benefit of the whole body. And so you can see the church is beginning to become a more complex organization. And we read this, Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you the seven men of good reputation, and so forth. But note that what is said in the following verse, note what's said. He said, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So there will be, they will be, the, the deacons will be in the field working and we will be presumably in the building praying. And in order to demonstrate this wonderful spiritual union between freedom and authority, Luke writes this, and the saying pleased the whole multitude. The church was pleased to all be involved with what came from the apostles, from the top down. And so we see this great Holy Spirit-inspired division of labor within the body of Christ, and we hold to this pattern to this day. Friends, deacons are not just important. They are indispensable to the right functioning of the church. And I want you to know we have very good deacons here with Dave and, uh, and Duane. And they go above and beyond handling all the functions that deacons should handle. And they're concerned about uh, their service to all the members. And so verses 6 to 8, we'll put it all together now. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, he starts naming the gifts now. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to faith. 
or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence. Can you imagine a non-diligent leader? He's not a leader at all. See a lot of that today. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. All right? Now, the first thing I always point out with regard to any teaching in the New Testament on the spiritual gifts is that the lists that the apostle gives are always partial lists. They are representative of a greater whole. Some of the gifts, it seems to me, are unnamed. So we know this firsthand because the list given in 1 Corinthians 12 is far more extensive than it is here, and the lists given in Ephesians 4 are less extensive than they are here. They are partial lists. Another thing to take into account is that the translators over the years have found it necessary to add certain words for clarity in uh, verses 6 through 8 here. Now, that's usually a good thing. You can't always translate a language word for word. They don't structurally work that way. And so they add certain words for clarity, and that's usually a good thing. However, words and word order are very important. And so if you're reading from your King James Version or your New King James, you should find that certain of these words are in italics. Did you notice that? You know that about your Bibles, right? Certain words are in italics. That's because the editors added them in for English-speaking readers. All right, that way we know this wasn't in the original, okay? Um, And you find that in both the King James and the New King James. Now, I checked my ESV. Now, I read from the New King James, as you know. But I checked my ESV in this regard, and it seems to me to be a more accurate rendering of this passage. Now, that's not to say I'm putting my blessing on the ESV like so many people have done. Oh, it's the great new version. Let's learn it. I don't use it. I refer to it. And you can use it if you like. It's a, it's a very fine version. Some believe it's, it's the best, it's the closest, and all of those things. But um, I have reservations with every version that I've come across. And there's strength and weaknesses in each, in my opinion. One of the weaknesses of the ESV is when they add words, they don't italicize it. They don't let you know. Um, however, it seems to me to be the better translation in this case for two reasons. One they left out some of those additional words, and I think it makes better sense. And two, the word rendered ministry is more accurately translated service. We have a certain um, predisposed idea of what ministry means. Really, in this case, it means service. It's talking about the gift of helps, the gift of administrations, if you will. All right? So the words rendered ministry is the word diakonia, all right? Diakonia, from where we get our word deacon. And it means this, and I'm quoting from the lexicon, it means service, ministry. It's A, used of domestic duties, right? Ladies. (laughs) And B, of religious or spiritual ministration, all right? Um, You may take note that in some other countries, you know how we have a Secretary of State and a Secretary of Defense right? Secretary of Foreign Affairs, Secretary of Labor. In England, they have ministers, the Minister of Defense, the Minister of Labor, right? They use the word that way because it's a service word, all right? So I'll offer you my rendering of the verse when I clear away all the, the extra verbiage 
and put in, insert what I, it seems to me is the correct translation of the words, we read this, having gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, if prophecy in proportion to faith, if service in serving, he who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with zeal, and the one who shows mercy with cheerfulness. In other words, if you have the gift, exercise the gift. If it's prophecy, then prophesy. Don't go beyond our faith, right? Within the proportion of faith. If it's service or ministry, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it's exhortation, then exhort. And I'm going to go into what these things mean. He who gives with liberality. Did you ever decide to give to somebody's need and you told them, I'm going to help you with that, and then you found out it was way more than you thought? Have you ever done that? No one's going to admit it. Okay. I'm done here. <clears throat> no, but um, he says, the one, who sh- uh, the one who gives, give with liberality. There's a gift of giving. Some people are blessed with the ability to give uh, more than other people are. And we see that in the churches. Um, so with regard to the daily administration of the church, there are specific gifts given by the Holy Spirit, and these gifts are to be used and exercised in the church. Now we saw from the book of Acts that those who are entrusted with the teaching and preaching of the word should not be expected to perform the daily functions of business administration uh, of the working body. I don't handle the business affairs of the church. I'm cognizant of them. You know, the men let me know what they are, and I give opinions. But I'm so glad I don't have to handle that. I'm not good at it. I would say I'm not gifted at it. All right? Of other gifts. That's why I always say when people say to me, what do I do with this? I say, I don't know. I don't, I don't do any menial tasks. <laughs> I have said that. I usually am kidding. <clears throat> um. And so those things are for others than the elders and deacons, primarily, we're talking about, all right? Um, But it's not only for the deacons. It's for anyone who has a gift of ministry or service or feels service-oriented, all right? Um, And when we think of ministering in this passage, think of administering. It's the gift of administrations that the apostle's talking about. As I've said, the King James Version makes it clearer in this case in Acts uh, chapter 6, it says their widows were neglected in the daily ministrations, which in other places says distributions. So don't think of it as, uh, as pastoral ministry when you see the word minister. So what are the gifts? Well, he starts with prophecy. Now, prophecy today in the church is a controversial subject. Are there still prophets? Are there still prophets prophesying future events? Are there still those? Well, there were, as we know, in the New Testament time before the canon was closed, right? When I say the canon, I mean the Bible, right? The canon means standard, and it refers to the um, 27 books of the New Testament and the 39 of the Old. That's the canon. It's closed. We don't add to it. So we um, don't usually, if someone says, I'm I'm having this prophecy, I'm receiving from the Holy Spirit, I'm getting a word of, what do they call it? A word of knowledge. I'm getting word of knowledge right now, and here's what it is. We don't scurry and write it down and add it to the Bible. You see what I mean? That's why it's controversial. 
Um, but Lloyd-Jones, who is not put off or afraid of those things, he's been accused of being a charismatic, by the way, um, which is strange when you look at um, who he really is in the fullness of his understanding of Scripture. But he writes this, prophecy always has the element of direct and immediate inspiration. He believes men receive direct and immediate inspiration. But even if they don't, they did at the time he wrote this, you see. That's called exegesis. We look at what it meant to them when it was written, to the intended receivers of it. So Lloyd-Jones makes the point that prophecy is direct and immediate inspiration. And he points to 1 Corinthians 14, where it says, if anything is revealed to another that sits by, let the first keep silent. In other words, this guy is receiving something from God and ought to be heard in the churches. You can see that that's um, controversial, right? MacArthur takes a more traditional view that prophesying is less concerned with predicting and more with clarifying. And as I turn to the lexicon, I can see why MacArthur's view is not unwarranted. The lexicon says this, prophetia is the word. And it says, signifies the speaking forth of the mind and the counsel of God. Pro meaning forth and femi to speak, to speak forth. And then it goes further. It says, either the exercise of the gift or of that which is prophesied. Prophecy is not necessarily nor even primarily foretelling. It is the declaration of that which cannot be known by natural means. In this measure, the teacher has taken place of the prophet. What do you think of that? The teacher has taken the place of the prophet. Now, with, the, with this emphasis, we're left uncertain as to any appreciable understanding of what's the difference between prophesying and preaching. And I'm uneasy about such a conclusion. In other words, why did he present them as different gifts if they were fading away and becoming the same gift? Those who hold to the fading away of certain gifts as the canon was closed to additions seems to be a healthy approach to interpreting the gift at least one, one verse points to the distinction. Peter writes this. There were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you. In other words, they had prophets and false prophets. You don't have that. You have teachers and false teachers. Now, I would say that it does seem that there are some very subtle differences between the gifts. Teaching, preaching, exhorting, and prophesying all share some of the same characteristics. But if we assent to the idea that prophecy has been replaced by teaching, I would wonder why the apostle chose in that time to mention both functions. You see my quandary? And so I'm suspect of calling for a complete abandonment of the sudden gift of prophecy in the churches. And I don't take that view. And I never have taken that view. I fall in line with Lloyd-Jones, even though it's really hard with all the other clamoring voices. Now, I'm not saying, I, you know what happens when you say something like this. There's all these eager people wanting to become prophets, and they start saying all these things that they read online. 
the QAnon posts and all these things, and, um, and we're all supposed to go, oh, that's deep. That's the fear. But the fear can't stop us from taking the word of God at, its, at face value. So I'm, I'm suspect of calling for a complete abandonment of sudden prophecy. And I would tend to hold with Lloyd-Jones that the gift of prophecy mentioned is direct, immediate inspiration. But notice he said, in proportion to our faith. All right? Now, when he says our faith, faith is used in two different particular ways in the Scripture. One is, faith is a gift of God put in us. It's the power to access the mind of God. That's what faith is, right? But there's another word. There's another meaning of faith. When we say keep the faith, we're not saying keep your faith. Keep the faith. It's the body of understanding of truth, right? We call our religion the Christian faith. So if the Bible is the standard and someone is receiving an immediate um, revelation or inspiration from God and mouths that, we always have the scripture to go back and see if that can possibly be a a true inspiration. Um, So I'm tending to say that the suddenness of new prophecies should not be struck from the list of gifts on the basis that it's become less necessary than before the canon was fulfilled. It seems to me that prophecies, though they may be new, so long as they are not in disagreement with Scripture, should at the very least, at the very least, rather, be scrutinized and listened to. One more point I'll make with regard to uh, sign gifts, and when I say sign gifts, I mean things like prophecy, miracles, healing, tongues. All right, is that they are not exercised apart from the will of the member. All right? The spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet. You are control of the gift. Paul says, if you, I, I thank God I speak in tongues more than all of you, but if you're in the church uh, and, and someone's speaking in tongues, make sure there's an interpreter and have no more than two or three at a time. In other words, you can control it. If you have 100 people all speaking with some sign gift that they're hearing, Paul says that's disorderly and that's not the work of the Holy Spirit. And so we're not, the gift doesn't control us. We control the gift. And while I'm quite certain that there are preachers and lay people within the church that would eagerly promote themselves as prophets, I haven't seen that here in the church, but I've seen that um, in um, nationally and internationally known preachers who go into a little trance and tell us what they're receiving right now. And it's usually gobbledygook and you never hear about it again. And sadly, that's where we are. And I think sometimes to hedge against that, we contort what the, what the word actually meant in its original. And I don't, I don't know that we should go there. Um, so I'll hold to the warning of James, who wrote, let not many of you become teachers. He could have easily have said prophets, right? That we shall receive a stricter judgment. You know, if people only knew that, if people only realize, these eager prophets, if they only realize the kind of judgment they're under, if it's not a real prophecy, and in most cases, it's not. Now, that's why Paul offers the regulation of prophesying in accord with the measure of faith. You note that's the only one he gives that restriction to, right? Which, in this case, refers to your understanding of the body of knowledge that made you a Christian in the first place, all right? 
Now, I've talked to you about the Jeremiah principle from Jeremiah 29, that if the gift is in you and the prompting of the Almighty is on you, prophetic words will pour pour forth from you, and you'll not be able to hold it back. But until such a thing takes place, so long as your spirit is subject to you, I would urge eager prophets to consider Paul's regulative principle. Prophecy, he, prophesy, rather, he says, in proportion to your faith. Do not present yourself as one who has understanding that he does not, in fact, have. And remember... Paul also writes in verse 16, verse 16, do not set your minds on high things, right? In other words, your gift is not about you. It is not an honor. It is a blessed responsibility. And so remember Paul's famous transition with regard to gifts and the extent thereof. From 1 Corinthians 12 into 13, he says, and he said, eagerly desire the best gifts, and yet I show you a more excellent way. And he goes on to show that love is always the prerequisite for effective exercising of the spiritual gifts. If love, if the gift you're expressing is motivated by love and not pride, you will do well. Now, as far as teaching and exhortation are concerned, they're very close. But I'll point out what I believe to be the subtle but real distinction between teaching and exhortation. And um, I want to tell you, I'm going to do this from personal experience because I have been variously criticized for my sermon prep from week to week. Criticized for my sermon prep. Not that I do too little, but that I do too much. Really, I've had this said to me. I've had someone say to, to me recently, um, that uh, you leave no place for the Holy Spirit in your teaching. You, you write all this stuff down. By the way, what I'm saying right now was not written down, but just so you know. Um, you write all the stuff down. How's the Holy Spirit going to work? And I'm like, the Holy Spirit couldn't work in me all week while I was preparing? While I'm prayerful all week and trying to put off distractions so I can prepare? The Holy Spirit's not in that? What did he say to Timothy? Study, he said in the King James and show yourself approved. A workman rightly dividing the word of truth. Study, he said. Right? Meditate on the word. Um, so I've been told I, I, by someone that I like a man who speaks without notes. Let me tell you something. When you go to a conference and the guy doesn't have notes, it's very powerful. I, I enjoy that. You know, when he's sort of is up there pontificating. Wow, it's massive knowledge. He's done that a hundred times. All right? He's gone on the circuit. He's gone around. He's done that. And I'm not taken away from that. Um, but still, you have to have some preparation. You know, I've, I've seen men get in the pulpit, and they just speak forth, and they are very powerful. And I don't belittle that gift. But in effect, that's exhortation. That's a guy who's not prepared, but his heart is full of the Word of God and the Holy Spirit, and he's speaking primarily to the heart of man. The teacher is speaking primarily to the head. He's leading you along, and ultimately, the head has to rule the heart and not vice versa. All right? So 
So my question to someone who says you prepare too much is, why do you insist on limiting the power of the Holy Spirit? And they say, I'm not limiting it. I'm setting it free. I'm facilitating it um, by being unprepared. Now, I've talked to some preachers, and I said, you know, I know a pastor. He gets in the pulpit every week, and he doesn't prepare or write down a word, doesn't use a text, just gets up there and speaks. And I said, I don't think that's good. And he said, I think it's sin. You know, I've talked to pastors, we kid around, I work one day a week. In fact, really one hour. One hour a week. But that's, if that's what you think, you don't understand the, the process of, uh, of the teaching gift. I've said to people, they say, I've had people say to me, I'm a, I'm a teacher, I have a gift for teaching. I said, do you read, do you study, do you have a gift for learning, first of all? You've got to learn something before you teach something. And by the way, the idea of the, uh, of the written text, the, the uh, transcript of the, of the text, that came about over time. That developed. Uh, some of you were here way back at the beginning when I used to just get up and preach. Now I had some notes, right? And a, a man can make cards or, you know, um, short notes that will just trigger him to pontificate on that, for a, that subject for a while and move on without, you know, um, coherent transcripts like I put out every week. But what happened back at the beginning is we had a man um, that was in our church who worked for the government, and he worked on the border down in San Diego. He was a border agent, all right? And one of the deacons would go to his place of work, and he would take, he said, let me get, have your notes so I can give them to Russ. It was Russ, right? And he said, and so Bob took the notes. He said, I'm going to fax them back when people fax stuff. When you didn't have all these things, you didn't have these things in your house. He, this was 1995. Not everyone even had a computer yet. And he'd, and he'd go down and he'd fax up my notes. And I'm like, he's not going to make heads and tails of my notes. You know, we weren't, we weren't recording anything in those days. So I said, you know what? I think I'll, I'll write the next one out. And it became not only a good way to disseminate what had been said and to, and to um, store it and to keep it, but... Um, it became a good discipline for me. I, you know what it is when I write the notes? I know when I'm done. It's not always easy to know when you're done. You know, because there's a lot more you could say. You have a series. How do you know when to stop? Oh, it's such a low point. I don't want to stop here. Well, I've already used it up. I'm done. <laughs> so I don't limit the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is with me in my study. Paul said to Timothy, study and show yourself approved unto God, a workman, that needs not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. It's a good thing, all right? But I have no criticism of the other approach. Some men make, um, give powerful sermons when they're just exhorting. I'd say that I've been present with such men that do that very thing to great acclaim, even my own. I would acclaim such men who do it well. But therein lies the distinction. Such men can be powerful and impressive, but I would say that such a man is exhibiting the gift of exhortation, which is speaking from one heart to another heart, all right? And almost exclusively to the heart. It's very emotional when someone does that. Where the teacher who's more prepared and has taken pains to offer proof texts and commentary of men wiser than himself is speaking to the intellect. The teacher speaks from head to head. 
And he'll be the first to urge that the mind must rule the emotions and not the other way around. Friends, do you remember what the Apostle Paul said about choosing elders and deacons? He said that zeal is good, but not without knowledge. Right? Zeal without knowledge. He said, let not the man be a novice or a young man that goes into the pastorate because he tends to have zeal without knowledge. He wants to do something, but he's really not ready intellectually to do it. You see? And so he gives us that regulative principle. All right, so my old pastor Ken was a very widely acclaimed preacher, great orator and speaker and encourager. Ken was a great encourager, all right? But he was not known for working a text of scripture and breaking it down for intellectual, historical, and spiritual inspection. He knew a lot about it, but really Ken wanted to get up and talk and talk about his, his um, um, evangelistic adventures that he had and spur us all on to share the word of God and tell us of people's testimonies and of his testimony. And he was great at that. That's exhorting. And that's a good thing. But teaching is necessary as well. And different men have different gifts. Both gifts are good and profitable when used to edify the hearer. The exhorter to the heart of man, the teacher to the head. But I'm going to end with this. Because we haven't talked about preaching, because it's not mentioned here per se. But in closing, I would say that the preacher must do both. All right? Now, I remember I had a, an old friend. He was a minister for many years. His name was Dave Kimball. And I asked Dave one time, Pastor Kimball, what is the difference between teaching and preaching? And he said, very humbly, he said, I'm not sure, but I know one thing. If you're not teaching, you're not preaching. You've got to learn something from the preacher who's also exhorting you. And so isn't it interesting that Paul wrapped it all together in a verse to, to Timothy from 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, where we read, Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with long-suffering and teaching. All right? So convince. Friends, that's preaching. Convincing. What is caruso? Preaching. What does it mean? Contend earnestly for the faith. Preaching's not the same as talking. You know, when you're having a discussion with people, all of a sudden someone starts pontificating, you go, don't preach at me. You ever done that or I had it done to you? Well, I have it done all the time, so I'm used to it. So convince them, preach, rebuke them, prophesy. Prophets rebuke, right? Exhort them. In other words, encourage them, excite them. With all long-suffering. Now, when you hear the word long-suffering, think of love. Think of mercy. All right? No man has any right to consider himself a teacher, a preacher, an exhorter, a prophet who has not love for the souls of the people who he's preaching to. And of course, teaching is teaching. And in your Bible, it might say doctrine, long-suffering and doctrine. So preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. And stay tuned for next week's service. Our Father, we pray in Jesus' name that you would settle all these things in our mind and that we would discern among ourselves who are our teachers, our preachers, our prophets, our ministers, Father, those 
who are mercy givers, those who give of their substance, Father, and let them give cheerfully and with and abundantly, Father, if they have been so blessed. We pray let us find our gifts and let the church prosper in these things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.